Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Today's episode is an interview I did with Pulitzer Prize winning author Anthony Doerr about his new book, Cloud Cuckoo Land. Um, Anthony and I actually have some mutual friends. Um, he graduated from Bowling Green State University's MFA program. I graduated from the BFA program. I started about two semesters after he'd graduated, but we still have a lot of um, people in common. So it was, didn't make it into the interview, but it was a fun conversation I had with him beforehand about some of our old instructors. If you listen to our September books episode, I talked a little bit about Cloud Cuckoo Land, which is about um, sort of one manuscript um, from ancient times that covers and is read by three different people and three different timelines. There is Constantinople, there is contemporary Idaho, and then far, far into the future and, and how this this one particular story kind of flows through and, and ties all of these timelines together. And I had a wonderful time talking with Anthony about this book, Um he is, of course, the writer behind All the Light We Cannot See, which was a huge book. Um, and yeah, so this is his new one. If you want to get a hold of the podcast, you can visit our website, professionalbooknerds.com. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. And you can always email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Um, so I think that's everything for now. And I hope you enjoy this interview I did with Anthony Doerr on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Professional Book Nerds podcast. My guest today is best-selling and award-winning author Anthony Doerr. Anthony's novel, All the Light We Cannot See, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and the 2015 Andrew Carnegie Award for Excellence in Fiction. He's also the author of the short story collections The Shell Collector and Memory Wall. His work has been translated into 40 languages and won numerous prizes, including the Barnes Noble Discover Prize, the New York Public Library's Young Lions Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, four Pushkar Prizes, and an NEA Fellowship, among many others. He is also born and raised here in Cleveland. Anthony's latest novel, Cloud Cuckoo Land, is out in September. Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. What's up, Jill? Thanks for having me, and hooray for Cleveland. Yeah, we love it here. Um, <laughs> so can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to Cloud Cuckoo Land? Sure. Yeah. So I was finishing all the light. We cannot see. It took me 10 years to write way too long. <laughs> uh, and that was, that came out in 2014 and uh, a part, maybe 60% of all the light is set in a little walled seaside town called Saint-Malo in France, in Brittany, France. And that Saint-Malo was just this tiny piece in Hitler's huge 
megalomaniacal project of building this thing called the Atlantic Wall, this attempt to like defend Europe of, uh, against uh, an invasion primarily from the United States, like 3,000 miles long. And so every text I would read about the history of defensive walls and wall building would mention the walls of Constantinople. So I was finishing all the light. I printed out, I knew nothing about Constantinople. I just printed out a, a 15th century drawing of it. Uh, apparently the walls stood for 1100 years and uh, the land walls successively withstood 23 sieges from foreign armies, people on like elephants and barbarians drinking blood from human skulls and the walls never gave out. And I had never learned about them going to high school in Cleveland. We kind of, uh, you know, we got through the fall of Rome and world history, and then we just zoomed immediately to the Renaissance <laughs> and like a thousand years whisked past. And so I thought, you know, I, I love to use fiction as a way to kind of rectify my millions of ignorances. I'll never rectify all of them, but it's always a, a wonderful opportunity to just chase curiosities and learn. And so I started reading as all the light was still in editing. I started reading about the walls of Constantinople in 2014. And then, uh, you know, as 2015 comes around and that book's out and I'm having a little more time, although I was doing a lot of promotional work for all the light, uh, that we have a, a presidential candidate going around the country getting crowds to chant, build that wall. And just this, this emotional element about walls is something started to really capture my imagination. And then when I learned that the walls of Constantinople allowed this book culture to thrive inside the city, that basically the Byzantine empire is the reason we have so many Greek and Roman texts that have survived from the ancient world because of the walls of Constantinople, I think there's about 55,000 ancient Greek texts still readable today, and about four, more than 40,000 of them exist because of copies that survived inside those walls of Constantinople for 1,100 years, being recopied by hand every one or 200 years by a scribe. Something about that really hit me, like, okay, there's human stewards protecting things, uh, you know, that, that's something really compelling to me. So I started Cloud Cuckoo Land. Uh, with a boy outside the walls and the Ottoman armies as they siege the city in 1453 and, uh, and a girl inside the walls, her name is Anna. And she, at a time when girls really aren't encouraged to read, she really loves to read and falls in love with literary culture and uh, starts reading the Odyssey by herself. And, uh, and then uh, I was about a year into the project. There's a long answer. Sorry, Jill. No, that's okay. I love it. Keep going. <laughs> uh, I'm about a year into the project and I realized the best way to dramatize the power of stewards, of librarians, of people who care for books over time is to show those books land in the hands of future generations. Because really what you're doing as a steward is you're protecting something for the people who aren't born yet. And so I decided to show the book that Anna and Omir helped preserve all the way back in the 15th century to show it land in the present and in the future. So I have two characters living in the present, Zeno and Seymour. And then I have the novel land in the hands of a reader in the future as well. I won't say exactly when her name is Constance, but she's in pretty dire circumstances and she needs this book. The book really kind of helps save her life in a way. So uh, so hopefully it's a, it's a dramatization of these little choices that we make 
uh, in our lifetimes and how they trickle down, kind of like down the Plinko board and prices right, ricocheting off all these pegs. And where do they reach at the bottom? And, and uh, we can never predict that. So I think hopefully it helps readers feel connected to the people who came before us and the, the children who have yet to be born. Yeah, I'm, it's interesting to me that, you know, you mentioned the like stewards of of this and, and librarians. Of course, the book is dedicated to librarians, which as a former librarian, I appreciate. I kind of love. Um, I just, yeah, like there's this idea of information and access to information and, and where it goes and who has it is such an integral part to the book. And libraries in particular play a big role in, in Cloud Cuckoo Land. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, librarians are, yeah, I mean, in many ways, it's a love letter to librarians and libraries, but also I hope it expands our ideas of what librarians are. There's teachers of all kinds in the books and each of the five protagonists really, um, it has a significant relationship with a teacher or a librarian. And, And I'm also playing with uh, questions about information technology in the present and AI in the future. Constance has a relationship with an AI called Sybil, who who really is a comprehensive library. And I'm trying to just ask questions. I'm not making any judgments. I'm just curious about how, you know, the Enlightenment thinkers, they thought if we just get information to all the citizenry, they'll, they'll make much better informed decisions. That's all it's going to take. Diderot, you know, is trying to assemble his encyclopedia. And he's like, here it is, all of knowledge in four <laughs> volumes. And here, you know, here we have infinite, basically infinite amounts of information coming at us all the time. And is it making us any wiser? Is it making us any calmer? Is it making us any more connected to each other or the other species with which we share our planet? I'm just trying to ask those questions. And what's that going to look like in the future when AI is able to really synthesize information? Can, Can an artificial librarian offer the same kind of services as a living flesh and blood librarian? I'm asking those questions anyway in the novel. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, and I think sort of along with that, um, one thing that I I loved is that sort of asking the question or or examining how the same piece of information can be viewed differently by others and along those different timelines. You know, you have one where the text is thought to almost have like healing properties, but then later another character is mocked for their interest in it because it's seen as like old fashioned or antiquated. And it's the same piece of information, but the same text that those like outside perspectives though, their view of it changes over the course of the book, depending on where in the story and the timeline they fall. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything is context. I mean, look at the way vaccine disinformation is being spread now. I mean, yeah, it's a, everything has to do with context and everything has to do with who's in power, you know, who, who's in power, determine the narrative and, and the lens with which we see certain pieces of information for sure. Um, so the author of the manuscript that is found in the book, Cloud Cuckoo Land, is the author was real, but the text is something that you invented. Is that correct? That's right. Good work, Jill. Yeah. So the <laughs> novel... 
Yeah, so let me just try to explain for folks who have no idea what we're talking about. The novel called Cloud that I've called Cloud Cuckoo Land has a book inside of it. And so there's a 24 little pieces of it that appear in 24 spaces. There were 24 letters in the ancient Greek alphabet. There's 24 books in the Odyssey and the Iliad. And uh, apparently this novelist, although there's a lot of questions about whether we should call these ancient texts novels or not, but they are prose tales with often third person characters who tell a story. So uh, it's safe enough to probably call them novels. This guy, Antonius Diogenes, none of his work survives. And he, we think he worked around maybe the first century CE. And he wrote a book called The Wonders Beyond Thule. We know that's because we have found four tiny fragments of it in papyrus garbage dumps uh, in Egypt. They've dug up like, you know, there's all kinds of big dumps of administrative documents and they've dug up four sentences that they think they can attribute to him. And uh, there's a summary written in the ninth century of this book called The Wonders Beyond Thule, which was apparently divided into 24 books. It had a series of interlocking characters and it played around with genre. It was uh, playing around with utopian satire. It was playing around with kind of romance. It was playing around with travelers narratives to distant places playing around a lot with myth. It even claimed that uh, in a preface, Diogenes apparently claimed that he had discovered this manuscript in a tomb instead of written it himself, which is something I'm playing with in my own novel. Mm -hmm. So I invented a book that he could have written called Cloud Cuckoo Land. Cloud Cuckoo Land, for folks who don't know, is uh, was a kind of fantasy utopian place in Aristophanes is the birds. And this is 500 years before Diogenes. This is 2,400 years old. There's a comic playwright in Greece writing these comedies that people would be cracking up at all these inside jokes. And in the birds, which is the original buddy comedy, these two guys decide Athens has too many lawyers. They want to get out of there. And they find, they found a city in the sky called Cloud Cuckoo Land with the birds halfway between the realm of the gods and the realm of humans. And they use it to kind of intercept messages between the gods and the humans. And of course, like all utopian stories, it fails, you know, it's a total disaster. Mm -hmm. They end up eating birds and one declares (laughs) himself king of the whole place. Their utopia quickly disintegrates. Uh, so anyway, I imagine Diogenes writing a kind of silly, hopeful utopian story called Cloud Cuckoo Land, and then each of these characters discovering it and what it means to each. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of wondering what your process was like for creating this story, like what the research was and and also deciding what to put into it. And I, I imagine you have an, another character who sort of has to fill in the blanks on their own because missing parts of the the original text are missing. And so I imagine your process was similar to that, but like, how does one go about creating like an ancient Greek text from an author whose actual things don't, we don't really have anything to compare to. (laughs) Exactly. Right. I mean, it sounds insane and that's often the way it felt, you know, I, I mean, almost all my projects, you know, you're in a good place if you feel like, you're just doing something so ridiculous and daring that you can never explain it to your friends. <laughs> I think that's when I know, okay, I'm on to something. I just, I feel so keenly the, the, the lack of time that we have here. Um, when I was in my teens in Cleveland, um, my mom's mom moved in with us. Grandma comes into the house and she's diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. I'd never heard of it. I uh, never heard that word before. And over the next, of course, the next couple of years, I just watched everything that was herself leave, you know, for she forgets how to care for herself. She forgets where she is. She forgets our names. 
um, you know, she could still beat me in gin rummy and she would have no idea who I was. And so I think as I, you know, now I'm getting closer to 50, I reflect back on that experience. And I think it really infused me with this appreciation for how fragile memory is and how fragile ourselves really are. Everything that depends on who Jill is depends on Jill remembering what Jill mm-hmm. has done. And so, you know, what I'm trying to really explore in this novel is, is memory. And, you know, that's what librarians can do is they can, and what books can do, the technology of a codex, which is just another word for the way we think of a book with leaves folded onto each other and something binding them together. This technology is one of the most effective things we have invented to preserve memory past the life of one person. And so, you know, that's really what the beauty of, say, the Odyssey or the Iliad are, are these old, old texts that preserve human memory long past the time when the bards who had memorized these long epic songs are gone. And so there's something really beautiful and profound about that and something really that decentering. I think it really removes you from the center of yourself. It's kind of similar to parenting in a way. It just reminds you that, you're just here as this long link of humans, ancestors to future people. And what decisions can we make right now to make us good ancestors, to make us, um, uh, allow us to leave this beautiful, shining green place, this interesting place for our kids so that they can be healthy in it. And I think, um, I think there's something about texts and books and reading that really profoundly moved me about that, the beauty of librarians protecting human culture for the next generations. And now we'll take a quick break for word from this week's sponsor. When is the perfect time to plant trees and shrubs? Big box store experts will tell you any time or, um, great question, But the best time to plant is actually fall, which means now is the time to go to fastgrowingtrees.com. No more waiting in lines, messy cars, and digging through a lackluster selection. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants, expertly curated to thrive in your area and delivered to your door in one or two days. Whether you're looking for shade, privacy, fruit trees, or just added color for your yard, Every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system, ready to explode with new growth come spring. I love fastgrowingtrees.com because I now have a clementine tree growing in my backyard. It's in a plant, uh, in a pot, so I can bring it in when it's winter, and I eat an absurd amount of clementines when they are in seasons. I'm very excited to have my own plant. Now, through November 30th, go to fastgrowingtrees.com pbn for 15% off. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash PBN. Fastgrowingtrees.com slash PBN. Sort of conjunction with that, you sort of have to consider all the things that we've lost because we don't have any, you know, there's like so many manuscripts that have been lost to time and were not preserved and we don't have them. I mean, like sometimes you think about the library of Alexandria and all of that information that's just gone. And thankfully now we're able with technology, as you said, to sort of like preserve all of this. And in, you know, the future, we have this AI that has access to all of this, 
but it does also ask that question all this information that we do have is it serving the world in a good way and it you know like we may have lost all this information from the past and history and not being preserved but that also may have had problems <laughs> it's not necessarily preserving or like not to say it's not worth preserving but there may have been information there that also could have not been great for the world if that Absolutely. makes sense yeah okay. of course <laughs> I mean, yeah, the fragility of memory is also being determined a lot by people in power. I mean, I think about the poet, very, very skilled lyric poet named Sappho. She apparently wrote about 100,000 lines of poetry, and we only have about 650 left. Mm -hmm. And you wonder, first of all, how many women were allowed to become literate in the ancient world? And then if so, how many were writing? And then how many of those texts were deliberately destroyed over centuries and millennia till now, or just accidentally destroyed? I mean, everything's coming for books and memory all the time. Fires, floods, worms, algae, mold, like there's just so many accidental deaths. And then there's, of course, all these institutional deaths that, you know, tyrants come in and they remove. There's all these religious zealots that would remove non-religious texts or lots of times the reason manuscripts would die is that monks would use you know parchment was valuable and so lots mm-hmm. of they scraped them and used them to rewrite copy prayers over and who knows maybe they're removing like one of Aeschylus's plays he wrote uh, 90 plays we think and only seven survive you know Sophocles wrote a hundred plays and only seven are left and you start to wonder you know, how can we make assumptions about anything about, say, Greek tragedy when we have such a, you know, we're looking at just like this tiny corner of the tablecloth of this huge table, and we're assuming we know something about it when we have such a small percentage of what's left. You know, that I just think that's also profoundly interesting, you know, as a kid wandering around fi- finding trilobites and crinoids and all these different fossils in the forests around, mm-hmm. around Cleveland, and you think, you know, what, why does this one creature this one skeleton of this creature get to last through all these eras and millennia and all the others are gone and you know is it just whim is it just luck is it chance you know so interesting to me what survives and what doesn't agreed i'm the same way yeah especially when it comes to texts and you know the the identity of shakespeare aside like there are lost shakespeare plays and sort of wondering how do you lose Shakespeare plays, but also recognizing because Shakespeare was not Shakespeare at the time that Shakespeare was around. Like right. <laughs> there's this, you know, as, as these, these plays and manuscripts and poems and things move into the future, there are new um, understandings applied to the author that were not there at the time. And that sort of like who is in power and who is deciding what is worth saving or not is often coming from someone who was not a contemporary of that person. And that's, that's also very interesting to me as well. Yes. Super interesting. And I kind of bring, try to bring it up in the novel and in some ways, Zeno, the, uh, the characters who lives in the present, he's an older man. By the time we get to 2020, he's a translator, just an amateur translator who learned ancient Greek as a prisoner of war in Korea. And he is working with kids to try to make a new translation of Cloud Cuckoo Land. And I think what I'm trying to suggest there is that every old text needs a new translation. Every generation needs multiple translations because, you know, the text needs to be renewed and renewed Mm -hmm. in contemporary language with contemporary context. And 
Uh, it makes me really excited. There's a new translation of the Odyssey, or relatively new, by a woman named Emily Wilson. She's one of the first, uh, maybe the first, big published uh, female translation of the Odyssey, and it's just a brilliant, smart translation. It's so exciting to see that being used in schools with the new context of saying, you know, we don't know who Homer was for for you know decades. Homer's taught in schools as a person, as if there mm-hmm. was some bearded guy writing this down. But really, now we believe it's this tradition of oral bards for centuries going from town to town kind of like on walking netflix and everybody would head out to the square and be like oh somebody's here with entertainment some stranger is here thank god and he he or she would perform you know these memorized couplets for hours and you know trade wine or food for it and and then it eventually gets written down possibly by the librarians of alexandria who knows what they're omitting and can containing and completing. But the idea of the Odyssey and the Iliad being these huge folk projects built by hundreds of people over time. So interesting to me. And anyway, we all need a new translation. No, I, yeah, I think the translation element brings in a whole other layer to this sort of conversation, because, you know, if you are necessarily familiar with how translations work, it seems perhaps you know you're sort of like how can there be a new translation like what what could there possibly be to bring newness to but again it's that context and and more you know different and nuanced version or nuanced understandings of what the original text was and it really can potentially bring more information or more enlightenment about a particular piece of writing like translation is just it's, it's a fascinating subject. Absolutely. And it's an art. I mean, you're always recreating. There's a subjective judgment in every single word. So um, it's not just rendering the exact same yeah. thing becoming transparent. And I think what's nice is now we are become, we're understanding in terms of say, the gender decisions a translator will make or, uh, you know, any millions of different cultural micro decisions you're making when you translate a sentence. And so to become more aware of those and for say Emily Wilson to say, you know, the, the original people who were able to read this probably were slaveholders or Mm -hmm. were probably men because boys were encouraged to learn when women weren't. That's interesting. And that changes the way we think about these texts for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of circles back to what you had said about how much of, of all of this is about who is in power and not naming names, but that question of going back to like building the wall and how that those people and those decisions can have a ripple effect through the millennia as we see in, in Cloud Cuckoo Land. You got it. And also I hope, you know, I mean, Cloud Cuckoo Land, you know, what it means nowadays, at least in British and Irish English is like a uh, fantasy utopia that is unrealistic. So often mm-hmm. it's kind of a disparaging thing to say Jill lives in cloud cuckoo land means Jill believes the virus will go away tomorrow or something like that. But uh, I, I also think it's kind of a beautiful thing as I was writing this book. So I started in 2014, finished in 2021. So my kids were 10 to 17. We have twin boys and mm-hmm. so many of the narratives Every time I'd go downstairs practically in the evening and they're watching TV, there's like a planet exploding on TV or (laughs) cities just being decimated. It's like every Marvel movie. It's like each one gets bigger in terms of how much dystopia it can present. And so I really wanted to play around with utopia narratives in the novel. I thought, 
even though a lot of dire things happens to these five characters, I wanted to tell a story of hope because there's something so interesting about every human culture that we dream of these better places where things are more equitable, people are healthier, food is great. <laughs> so I wanted to ask all these questions about cloud cuckoo lands and, uh, and then maybe even suggest like, hey, everybody look around, like what we're living in right now is our cloud cuckoo land. And we need to work as hard as we can to try to preserve it before we heat it up too much or we remove all the biodiversity from it. Yeah, um, this is going to connection but just work with me on this i um i i play the legend of zelda video games and so i've been playing skyward sword which um starts in a land in the sky like they have this land in the sky which is viewed as this utopia there's land beneath them beneath the clouds that they don't ever go to and as part of the game like you go from their land up in the clouds down to the land below and it, it does sort of ask a lot of questions of like okay, well, we think things are good up here, but are they? And is there more to explore down below us that we're missing? Um, And so I feel like I'm going to have a greater appreciation for my game playing in Skyward Sword now. I'm like, like, this feels very familiar. This feels like there is something here. That's awesome. But what I hope the novel can do is remind you that like this, that's a story, that Zelda narrative that you're engaging in is is the oldest story, one of the oldest stories and across, not just in Western culture, this idea that it's also, there's human restlessness built into it. And I think that's why commercials are so unbelievably effective. I think there is something in us that makes our species so successful is that there's a kind of restlessness, at least genetically programmed into some people. And, um, you know, that's what commercials exploit. It's like, do you, you should not be satisfied with what you have and Mm -hmm. you should get our stuff and that will help you be happier. There's something in me too. I think that was kind of, this was my middle age book, I think, because I was trying to think through how can I accept and be grateful for everything I do have. And, and really embrace the fact that my eyes are falling apart or my knees hurt. And, you know, how can I still uh, be happy with that and not wish, not look longingly across the horizon for another life? You know, that's really the, the key to happiness, I think, is to stop always thinking the grass is greener somewhere else or below Skyland or wherever <laughs> Zelda's headed, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, because libraries and books and all that have played such a big part in this book and because you are from Cleveland, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask if you have any like memories from growing up and using the local libraries here. Oh yeah, absolutely. The Bainbridge Public Library and the Mayfield Public Library were kind of like mom's mom. My mom was a science teacher. You know, she worked all the time except in the summers and She's always tired, you know, so much work to wrangle teenagers. So uh, often I think the the libraries were our de facto daycare. I was the youngest of three boys. And uh, what, what I love so much about those days anyway, is that I was never encouraged not to read way above my level, whatever level meant. And uh, mom never really questioned the books I would bring home. You know, I'd of course get like some Peanuts books or later Calvin and Hobbes books and Ziggy books out of the library. But I also would just some, 
you know, later started grabbing Stephen King, or I have this really clear memory of getting The Sheltering Sky by Paul Bowles, which is this kind of really like hot desert novel set in, the, you know, in, in North Africa and they're smoking hashish. And I have no idea what any of that is, but nobody's telling me like, you know, stamp, this is not approved for your age. And there's something really liberating about that. This idea that like, oh, I think I'm reading a book that adults might read and being able to chase your own reading independence and make your own kind of idiosyncratic DNA of your own reading adventure was so powerful. And that's what libraries can do. I mean, it's also free. You know, if you want to become Mm -hmm. a filmmaker, although thankfully technologies really is making filmmaking a lot more inexpensive, but um, you know, you still need thousands of dollars for equipment and to access and study the masters. You need some kind of a subscription to Netflix or something. Although of course you can still do that through libraries as well. But for me, this idea that you could go study the masters for free and then use these incredibly inexpensive materials. I mean, to write, you really just need to be able to feed yourself and have $5 for a ream of paper and a pen or something so powerful about the democracy of that that these tools are so inexpensive and yet you can create such complicated and immersive worlds with these really inexpensive materials i think i learned all of that by visiting the public libraries of my youth i love that answer um you touched on this a little bit but for my final question i'm i'm wondering what you hope readers take away from reading cloud cuckoo land Oh, yeah. Well, uh, if it's just one word, it's interconnectedness. I think so much of modern life disconnects us from the sources of, say, our food. Uh, You know, when we go buy chicken breast at the store, you and I don't get any blood and feathers on us and we don't get to see the chicken. And uh, when you and I are using Zoom right now to record this podcast, all I see is this glossy, nice picture of your face and this pretty interface on my laptop. And I don't understand all the infrastructure behind how much energy is being burned and where are the servers that are allowing this conversation to happen. And so we're being severed all the time. When you drive past roadkill on the road, you're always, you know, you're just urged like, don't worry about that. That's what everybody just drives past that. And it's, but yet that's a creature that shares the same world with us. And you know, even the way our language says human and natural world or the human and non-human worlds, there's such a, a built-in implication that humans can be separate from these systems that sustain us. And every day, science is discovering more and more how interconnected and intertwined and complicated all these systems are, particularly when it comes to climate and also biodiversity. So I think to pretend that we can just continue to eliminate so many wild creatures from the planet and continue to pump carbon into the atmosphere without remembering all of our interconnections is quite dangerous. And so I hope that the book makes you feel connected to the people who came before you, the people who will come long after we're dead, and also all the species with which we share this amazing place. A great answer. Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to chat with me. Of course, Jill. Thanks for having me. And thanks so much. Forget about my books. Thanks so much for just getting people juiced about reading. It's awesome. (laughs) Yes, it's the best part of my job, just talking about books and getting people to read them. So. Well, that's cool. Well, thanks for doing it. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an evergreen podcast signature program. 
to learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Jill Grunenwald and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.